Midwest Crime Files is a true crimes podcast. In it, we discuss adult themes and go over the details of heinous crimes and how they were committed. Viewer discretion is advised. Welcome to the Midwest Crime Files. I'm your host, Gina. I'm Chris. And we're here to tell you the stories of small towns and the heinous crimes that changed them forever. This week's story brings us very close to our home in Beckmeyer, Illinois. And Beckmeyer is a very small village that normally has zero murders per year. A murder in the entire county is extremely rare. So, in 1989, when there was a murder in the small town of Beckmeyer, it shocked the community. It was, in fact, the first murder in almost a decade for the entire county. The victim was a young mother who had spent the previous night out, and this was before DNA evidence was the gold standard, and they really had to rely on some unique forensic science techniques to solve this case. This is the story of the Beckemeyer Barhop murder. Sandra Shelton was born Sandra Johnson, October 29, 1956. She was raised in the small community of Beckemeyer. Her parents had eight daughters before their marriage ended. His father, her father, later remarried and Sandra was joined by a brother and two more sisters. She married Robert Shelton and had two children, Natalie and Nicholas, before divorcing. Her children lost their father prior to the summer of 1989 when Sandra was living in Beckemeyer. She had moved back to Beckemeyer in November of 1988 and was staying in a quaint little two-story home on Elizabeth Street. On July 11, 1989, Sandra's children were staying with grandparents and she had some time out for herself. She stopped by her mother's house earlier that afternoon to show her a black purse that she had just purchased and was really excited about. Later that night, she entered Page Bar and Grill and ordered a beer. Soon, a man joined her at the bar. They be struck up a conversation, seemed to be getting along really well. So when they got sort of tired of being at that establishment, they actually left together, went a couple blocks down to Main Street Saloon in Beckmeyer. Her and the man that she was with, they drank some more beers. They did a little bit of dancing. And they even did um, what was sort of a tradition at the bar, and they used a magic marker to sign the wall. She signed, and he signed below her. They ordered a six-pack of Miller Lite to go. There's a sign of the times, right? Right. Beer to go in a bar doesn't really happen these days. They left the bar together, according to witnesses. The next day, around 11 a.m., Sandra's daughter returned home. When she entered the house, the 14-year-old girl came home to a horror. She found her mother's body lying on the floor, and she smelled a heavy odor of natural gas. 
she was at 14 smart enough to make sure she turned the stove off and stop the gas smell before she ran next door where her aunt lived to get help. When the cops arrived at the home, they found, again, the strong odor of the natural gas, and they also found burning candles. Sandra was found face up, nude, on the living room floor. She was laying in a pile of her own feces. She had her blouse tied around her neck and sort of intertwined with her necklace. Other than that, her body was completely nude. She had shoestrings tied to one wrist, and her watch was still in place on her other wrist. She had bruising and swelling to her face, which indicated there had been some sort of struggle. She had stab wounds to her chest. She had little drops of the candle wax dripped all over her body. The investigation was led by Alva Bush, who if you listen to our podcast regularly, he was the lead investigator for the Dale Anderson case, which is the suspected Belleville serial killer. And I'm sure they had to get somebody from Belleville because... This this area isn't equipped to... To do any kind of forensics. Nothing with homicide. Like, we don't have homicides here in Clinton County generally. You know, it's just it's just not a common thing. So, you know, they had to get some outside help um, for this. And I can't even imagine how shocked the arriving officers had to have been. This is not something that is usually on their, on their beat. You know, they're maybe pulling over... A couple drunk drivers and breaking up some bar fights but they don't usually have to handle homicide um, what they found in the house were four unopened cans of Miller Lite in the refrigerator Sandra's bra laying near her and it was torn as if it had been torn off her pants and underwear were found in like an inside out sort of like they've been rolled off um, you know, indicating that she probably wasn't the one who removed them. And then they also found two empty Miller Lite cans in the house. The autopsy was performed on Sandra on July 12th. Her cause of death was determined to be strangulation. Her trachea had been completely crushed. The victim suffered five blows to her head and five stab wounds in the chest. One of the stab wounds would have been fatal, but because there was such a small amount of blood in the chest cavity, they determined that this was probably done after she was already dead, maybe to make sure that she was dead. She appeared to have bruising on her chest and superficial cuts to her abdomen. And basically what it comes down to is she suffered a horrible death. You know, she was victimized in multiple ways and really had a, a really brutal, brutal death. Yeah, but I mean, you say victimized, but there was never any proof. Like, they did, an, whenever they did, you know, the like a, what we consider now like a rape kit, and there was no semen found, there was no 
vaginal tearing or anal tearing. There wasn't anything that suggested sex, like sexual assault. Other than her being nude. It, yeah, except for like the only thing that said that was like, so they think that it was probably, that was the reason for it, but they could never conclusively prove that it happened. Correct. Toxicology testing determined that she had consumed a considerable amount of alcohol prior to her death, and her out- blood alcohol level would have peaked at 0.48 during the night, but was ultimately 0.35 at the time of her death. So 0.08 is the legal driving limit. So she's she was feeling, you know, pretty tipsy, I would imagine. Um, you know, or just obliterated drunk. It's, it's not uncommon, you know, in Clinton County. I think we have one of the highest alcohol consumption per capita counties in, in, in the entire country. In the country. I mean, it's not just, it's a sport around here. I mean, it's, that's, I mean, we have numerous deaths a year related to drunk driving, underage drunk driving, stuff like that. I mean, so it's not like this is... A point, what you say, point four eight. Yeah, I mean that's what she would have peaked at at the, her time of death. She was point three five, so she was starting to. She's still pretty gone, but she was um, maybe starting to sober up, trying to yeah, sober I mean, up. And what a lot of people got to remember is like, yeah, we say that point oh eight is the legal drink, like that's the intoxication limit. But when you have heavy drinkers, which the eighties and this around this area, hell, that's. Well, and I don't know if Sandra was a heavy drinker. Um, Certainly, it was suggested. And, you know, I kind of went back and forth on the title of this story, calling it the Beckmeyer Barhop murder, because I didn't want to place blame on the victim. That was my concern. But I ultimately decided to keep the name because at this time in the 80s, you know... It it was socially appropriate to, to do that. Hell, right. it's socially appropriate. To, like, how many times have we went out, you know, when we were younger and actually still drank? And it would it would be nothing for us to hit up a bar here and then go to another place. Well, have a couple, like, kind I of mean, a thing in this area to go bar hopping, you know. And it, it certainly isn't meant to be a derogatory. But, you know, the thing is, too, is there were a lot of people that did victim blame. And I'll, I'll get on to that a little bit more later. But... You know, alcohol definitely played a part in this. Not that it was her fault. I wonder um, when we get later on down in the story, her perpetrator will never know what his blood alcohol level was. Right. I mean, you know, certainly it's not her fault. Um, the fact that she was found nude did suggest a sexual assault. But, you know, like Chris said, there was nothing confirmed. There was no sperm. There were, was no obvious trauma. But it certainly seemed like a sexual assault was possibly the motive, you know, being the way that she was found. Bartenders at two local establishments, the two that she was at, had described the night that Sandra died to the police. And they were able to give a lot of identifying information about the man that Sandra met in the first bar and went to the second bar with. They were able to describe his vehicle very accurately. And on July 13th, 1989, just the next day, that doesn't take investigators very long, they arrest Robert Todd. 
and charge him with first-degree murder. Todd had moved to Carlisle about six weeks prior to the murder. Carlisle is like a stone's throw from yeah, Beckemeyer. Yeah, it's like literally five minutes down the road. Yeah, very close. Um, he was an unemployed construction worker at the time. And we find out a lot of really interesting information about Robert Todd. He was born in 1962, and he was the oldest with two younger sisters. And at his trial, they would talk about how his mother was apparently very strict and abusive. She allegedly physically abused him and his sisters frequently, including throwing a knife at Robert's head when he was a child. Robert developed a stutter at a very young age and was often bullied, and this was sort of attributed to the abuse that he experienced at home. His defense attorney argued that he had a learning disability, and that's why he did really poorly in school when he was growing up. Despite all of this difficulty that he had, he was able to graduate high school and went to one year of Bible college before dropping out. He also enlisted in the Army, but was out of the service within a year. I looked for more information about his time in the Army, and I really couldn't find anything. And once again, like, this is one of those cases that we had before. I mean, if you see somebody service that's been cut short within a year, it's most likely a dishonorable discharge or some kind of administration, like, administrative discharge where, like, failure to conform... You know, like, there's so many different ways that the military can get you out of the military if you don't, if they don't deem you to be... Fit. Like, fit for it. And not physically fit, but mentally fit as well, so... Right. Um, so after he left the army, he began to abuse drugs and alcohol, and even apparently tried to commit suicide a few different times. At the time of his crime, however... He had a fiance in his hometown of Decatur, which I found that very weird because if you have a fiance in Decatur, what makes you move to Carlisle? They said he was unemployed, so it's not like he moved for work unless maybe he moved from for work and then got laid off. Yeah, I mean, if you like once again, like that's one like a prime industry around, especially in Breeze. Mm-hmm. You know, how many different construction companies do we have around here now? And I know a bunch, like, a couple of the major ones around here were active in the 80s, you know. So, yeah, he could have easily had, you know, came down here to find work, found work, but then got laid off. Maybe because of alcohol, maybe because of drugs. But, I mean, once again, the we couldn't find any information as to why. Right. Like, like there was, like, the, there's not a lot of information on Mr. Todd as far as the whole reasoning for being down here and the reasoning why he was unemployed at the time. So this is all just speculation. You know, everything we say now is just speculation. So Right. So, for the trial, it wasn't your normal trial by jury. Mr. Todd, under the advisement of his defense attorney, actually decided to waive his right for the jury trial and let the judge alone determine his guilt. I'm sorry, like, I will, if I ever have to go in front, like, to trial, it will always be in front of a jury. And never, like, I don't, I don't agree that one person can determine my fate. 
Right. You know, this, like, I believe that it needs to be a jury of my peers that decide my fate. You know, like, if they find I'm guilty, fine, I'm guilty. I'm not going to let it ride on one judge that may or may not have be preaching from the pulpit, you know, or preaching from, you know, the judge. Well, and I wonder, because like they said, this was the first murder in the entire county in a decade. So did they feel like because this is such a safe community and the fact that it was a murder trial that the jury would automatically find him guilty just because this kind of stuff doesn't happen in their community and they want to hold someone responsible well, then, so maybe that was the thought like we have a better chance with a judge than then, we do a jury I mean, well then what what's to say that the judge does doesn't do that either well you know judges I, are supposed to be held to a higher standard but how many use, times how many use ta- legal definitions how, how many times have we heard of judges that have ruled like I'm going to put this out there, but like paternity cases mm-hmm. where it's always the mother. Like it always goes straight to the mother. No matter if the mother's on crack, oh, the baby goes to the mom. Right. You know, like, so you can't say that there's a moral death. Like there's a high, like, yes, there are, they're supposed to be to a higher standard, but a lot of, I mean, some of the judges don't do that. And I know that Clinton County has a couple of judges now that I don't like, and I'm sure they were in the past that, are very one track mind mm-hmm. and have their like they're already set in stone of what they believe and what they don't believe. So So at Mr. Todd's trial, Scott Nielsen testifies against Robert Todd. Now, Scott is someone that shared a cell with Robert Todd at the Clinton County Jail after his arrest. He gave testimony that Robert confessed to the crime in great detail. He told him that the night Sandra died, that he had met a woman at a bar and danced, that they had signed their names on the wall of the bar and then went back to her house to listen to Bob Seeger. He told Nielsen that he drank two Miller Lights at the home and then tried to make sexual advances towards her, but she rejected him. He said after she rejected him, she he slapped her and that he didn't remember what happened after that. His next memory, according to what he told his cellmate, was waking up at a convenience store the next day. So he conveniently blacked out everything that happened after she rejected his advances. But this testimony is important because he talks about having drank two Miller Lights, which is exactly how many empty cans out of the six-pack. So that lines up with the evidence. And then investigators found the Bob Seeger tape in the tape deck of Sandra's house. So the information he gave in that confession, although he doesn't, say he remembers what exactly happened it lines up extremely well with the evidence the empty uh miller light cans were important because they also corresponded that evidence with the bartender at main street who said that they bought a six pack and left with the six pack Mm -hmm. the bartender at both of the bars that they went to 
were able to identify Mr. Todd in a lineup as the man who was seen with Sandra. They also found the black purse, the one that she had gone out of her way to show her mom the day before her murder, about a month after she was killed in a field. Her identification was inside, but all of her money and valuables had been taken. So aside from the physical violations and being brutally murdered, she was also robbed. A forensic scientist specializing in latent fingerprints and footprints testified as well. The testimony said that Todd's shoes were a match for the footprints found at the crime scene. Additionally, a fingerprint was positively identified as Todd's at the crime scene. Another forensic scientist testified using chromatography that the wax droplets found at the crime scene could have possibly been from the same candle as wax that was found in Robert Todd's bathtub. They were similar enough to have come from the same candle. So what I'm th- what's going on in my head, what I'm picturing is that he turns the gas on, he drips the candle wax on her, lights the candles. I think he was probably hoping the house would catch fire. Yeah, and that's looking at like what the scene and everything, it looks like he was hoping that it would catch fire. You know, and then I'm sure in the process of putting the wax droplets on her, which I don't know what like the purpose of that was. To maybe think that she had an accident with the candle? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But I'm sure he dripped it on himself, so then he goes home and he showers and the wax is in his bathtub. And right. they were able to match that. So that is sort of the creative forensics before there was a lot of DNA evidence used. Robert Todd was facing three counts of first-degree murder and two counts of felony murder. Which I had to look up because I you hear felony murder and first-degree murder, and I th- always thought I always thought like murder was murder. Mm-hmm. So first-degree murder is just the killing of a person or the act that would kill a person. So I premeditated guess, act. Pre, yeah. So I guess that three of. Or there's like three different ways that she could have possibly died. Right. I would think of stab wounds, the trachea being crushed, and then the blows to her head. Right. So that's where they get the first degree murders from. Right. And then felony murder is when there is an act where somebody dies. Like a felony act. So when she was robbed is when she is what gets... And then the attempted sexual assault. Right. Which they, like, again, they couldn't conclusively prove it, but the preponderance of evidence, I mean... Right, and Gina is one of these people that, like, knows this stuff, but me being a schmuck, <laughs> I I have no clue. I, I, I always thought that murder was murder, you know, and in re- some recent cases we realized uh, that they had, like, five counts of first-degree murder brought onto them, and it's like, how can you get five counts of murder for murder in one person? Well, for each stab wound... For each action that a perpetrator takes that could lead to that person's death, that is likely to lead to that person's death as a count of murder. Did not know that. If they die. If they don't die, it's a count of attempted murder. So, so for all you... Non-crime junkie people. Yeah, you non-crime noobs like like me, 
There's your little uh, crinkle in your brain for the day. So he's facing these charges and, you know, like we said, the felony charges are coming from this robbery and attempted sexual assault. The prosecution's theory was that he assaulted her because she rejected his advances. He strangled her and then stabbed her and gave her the blows to her head to ensure that she was dead and then attempted to light the house on fire. The judge heard the evidence from the victim's family as well as from Robert Todd's family and the defense witnesses in order to determine what ultimately was going to happen. He was found guilty of murder. He was found guilty of all charges. And he was facing capital punishment, which this is before Illinois abolished the death penalty. The defense pointed to the alleged abuse at the hands of Todd's mother, his learning disability, his mental state and suicidal history, and a history of head injuries as mitigating factors. Um, despite this, the crime was so brutal and it was just too much for the judge to overcome. He was ultimately sentenced to death. Now, I will tell you, there was something that I, I when I was reading the court records for this case, there was something that really struck me as odd, but I really, I guess it wasn't for 1989. One of the people that testified in the sentencing portion of the hearing was Robert Todd's mother. And one of the things she said that was then documented in the court records as one of the aggravating factors for why he should get the death penalty was that he frequently lived with women for which he was not married to. I thought that was really odd. So many, like that's common now. Right. So common. But this is a small Catholic community in the 1980s. And, and I guess that was really frowned upon and seen as like a character flaw. But that being said, they also used one of the things to mitigate his need for the death penalty as he was of Christian faith. Right. Well, that doesn't really mean anything either. I mean... Ideally, it should, but, it you know, if you no. murder someone... God, in the Bible, it says eye for an eye. You know, but, you know, you murder somebody, does that somehow make you more of a righteous person and less deserving of punishment because you believe in God? Like, I don't know. I just, I found the whole thing very strange and very much a sign of the times. And it really had to make me think about how much our society has changed right. and how much things that really have nothing to do with this crime were considered. Now, don't get me wrong. I think he's 100% guilty, and I think he deserved whatever punishment the judge saw fit. I just found that particular little piece of information yeah. odd. The judge had heard evidence from both sides of the family and you know, he had even heard evidence from this 14-year-old girl that had to come home and find her mother dead. I think, by all accounts, he made the right decision. I do think that Robert Todd was where he needed to be. He repeatedly appealed his death sentence without success, but it really doesn't matter because, like we've said in a couple different stories now, 
Governor George Ryan commuted all death sentences in the state of Illinois to life without the possibility of parole on January 12, 2003. Since then, the death penalty has actually been abolished in the state of Illinois. Robert Todd is currently serving his time at Pinckneyville Correctional Center, where he is not eligible to receive parole. He will spend the rest of his life behind bars. In a town with a murder rate of zero per year, zero, and let that sink in, on average, there is zero murders. So, you know, one murder, especially one as savage and brutal as the murder of Sandra Shelton, disturbed the illusion of safety in this community. When this happened, I was actually living in Beckemeyer. I was four years old. I don't remember any of it until a few years later. And then, you know, you would hear people kind of mention it in passing. You know, that girl that went bar hopping, got drunk and took a guy home with her. And then you would hear things like, you know, when you bring a stranger home with you from a bar, what do you expect to happen? And, you know, maybe she should have been home with her children and blah, 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 and all these nasty, horrible things that are just unnecessary. I remember hearing all that, you know, probably two or three years after it happened, because I don't think I remember much from being four. But, um, you know, murders didn't happen in that community. And I wonder if it made people feel better to think that, like, somehow they were better than her, so it couldn't happen to them. But the victim blaming is just what kind of bothered me with this case a little bit. You know, the fact that she was out and that she had drank alcohol and that she invited somebody to come back to her house. Like, it's like 1980s version of slut-shaming. Basically, yeah. You know, like... It's her fault she got murdered? Like, no, I don't think so. You know... And and that's one way that I love, like, it's slowly starting to turn around that, you know, people are becoming more woke. Right. (laughs) As the kids say. You know, like, it's... We're all, like, a man can't be, like, a woman isn't at fault. A man, like, it It depends, like, you know, that it all de- depends on the intention. Right. You know, and like they said, you know, they think that he forcefully tried to have his way with her, and she said no, and he's like, fuck it, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, like, I'm gonna take it anyway, and you're not gonna live through it. You know, we have to stop realizing that we can't blame women for the way they dress. We can't blame right. women for doing, you know, being like being able to have fun and go out and have a good time. Well, and I think she had an extra stigma on her. Like, had she been 21, it maybe wouldn't have been so bad. But because she was older and had children and was divorced, oh, heaven forbid. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, like, and it just, it boggles my mind because I can tell you as... You know, I was at one point a divorced mother of three, and it wasn't frequent, but every once in a while I would have a chance to go out. And, you know, especially when you have kids, you're not ready for that night to end. So, you know, when the bars close, you want to go do something and hang out. It's not necessarily an invitation for sex. It's not necessarily an invitation for anything other than what it is. And the fact that, you know... She was blamed at all for him being well, a horrible person. And that's where the, like, stigma has to end. Like, just, like, guys, 
Just because a woman invites you like over to her house for a drink doesn't mean you're getting laid. Exactly. You know, just because you sure as hell don't have a right to put a hand on her, more or less well, kill it just, her. Just it, the, it being <laughs> the shy guy growing up. Just because a girl's nice does it nice to you doesn't mean she wants. <laughs> doesn't mean she wants you. Exactly. You know, like some some people are just kind hearted. You know, and like. Well, leave it. Leave it at that. Single moms sometimes just want to have fun. Right. I mean, it's. I'm glad that the times are the times are changing. They're changing slow, especially in small communities like this right. one. Right. Um. You know, the family of Sandra, like, it's just so sad to me because they they don't have her, and I feel for her daughter. I can't imagine being 14 and being the person that found your mom and. You know what that does to her long term. Um, hopefully, she has been able to, you know, work something out. You know, if she maybe needed help or something like that to deal with that. Because I don't know how I would deal with that. That's just an awful image to have in your brain. Robert Todd was spared the death penalty by this blanketed commutation, and. I think what really bothers a lot of people about George Ryan's decision is that it was just a blanket. You know, everybody that had the death penalty, now you have life in prison. But it didn't take into account the crimes, the evidence, or anything. And I know that, like, in the state of Illinois, there have been several death penalty cases that had been proven to be wrongful convictions. That is what led him to make that decision. But in the meantime, you just robbed a lot of people of, closure. of justice and closure and what they felt was the appropriate justice. Right. I mean, you know, and I, I think I've said a couple different times, I don't even know really honestly, truly how I feel about the death penalty. But clearly, in most cases, a jury and in this case, a judge had found that to be the reasonable punishment. And I just don't. I don't know that I feel like the governor should have a right to change that. Especially not like this. This was a blanket. Everybody, you know, no, it's not a get out of jail free card, but it's a get out of the death penalty for free card. Every single death row inmate. And I think that that impacted those victims and their families. Just, it just makes me so sad. Yeah. Hopefully, Sandra's loved ones can take solace, though, in knowing that he will not have a chance for parole. He will spend the rest of his life behind bars. If you want more information on this case and to see some photos and a list of references, please visit us at www.themidwestcrimefiles.com. Please also make sure to like and follow us on Facebook and share with your friends. And we do have one exciting announcement. We do have the Midwest Crime Files store up and running on our website. Again, that's www.themidwestcrimefiles.com. And right now we have a limited number of items. Um, but two. We have two. Yes. We have magnets, like car magnets and t-shirts. No, coffee cups. Oh, coffee cups. T-shirts are coming soon. Now... We are not going to be making any money off of this. No. Uh, it's mainly, we want you guys to spread the word. You know, if you guys enjoy what we're doing here and like the content that we're putting out, buy a mug, like, and 
share the stories with your friends. Um, there's some ex- some extra things that Gina's got in the works that are big news, but I'm not going to spoil it right now. But you know, we're trying to grow this community, and like like we said, this isn't going to like we're not here to make money off of this. This no, is we're not quitting full time jobs. No, like <laughs> even though I told Gina I would make a great stay at home husband. But, you know, this isn't something that we're trying to, to do to get rich or to make any money off of. You know, we, we do this for the love of computers and doing podcasts and her freakish love of true crime. <laughs> um, but, you know, we need your guys' help. We need you guys to spread the word. Uh, we're getting close to our 1,000 follow goal. I think goal. we're at 888. Uh, on Facebook and at a thousand followers we'll have another special like mini episode for you guys um, and we still need your guys' suggestions like I have yet to see anybody... I got a few today oh did you I okay. did get a few today you I know? was very excited and it was kind of interesting because I responded back to the individual and she's like oh my god thank you so much for getting back with me she's like I love your podcast I just found it so you know that made me feel good that warmed my heart so like, thank you for that I mean like we we are still a very young podcast I think this is episode 12 yes god we've been doing this for three months 12 already or 13. Mm-hmm. God, okay. So maybe we're not so young. Uh, That's still pretty young. <laughs> but, you know, we're always looking for... We need your guys' help. Um, any kind of if tips, tricks, you know, comments, snide remarks, you know, anything <laughs> that you guys want to send to us, send us through either the Facebook page or you can send us a message through our the website. Uh, and if you guys have any tips or, you know, anything on cases that you guys want to hear because this is like we love doing this for you guys but we we want to we want to tell you guys stories that you want to hear like oh i heard this story about such and such back in the day and i didn't really know what was going on with it let us do the research for you we are we are your guys i love to research it gina has like 30 books right now (laughs) on our bedside table plus a kindle full of true crime books that i don't it whatever like it's mind-boggling how much money we've spent on just books alone. <laughs> so I mean, one of the things is, is I listened to some of the other true crime podcasts before we started this one, and what I found was every once in a while there might hit a story from where I live, but not that often. And those are the ones I really wanted to hear. Right, and this you is... know, so there's a lot that are Southern Illinois, but I know we also have listeners in Michigan. So next week we're going back to Michigan. And uh, those people in the United Kingdom, the UK, and Spain, and I think we had one in Kenya. That's are, a little far from the Midwest. I mean, I, hey, you want to know what? If you got a story you want us to cover? Send it to <laughs> us. I will be. I will. I will do all the research for a UK story. Well, that'll be interesting because I, I love, I, I love England. I love whatever. One Let's, of these days, we're gonna have. A Chris researched episode. That's going to be fun. It'll be five minutes. (laughs) All right, guys. uh, We're going to cut this episode off. We appreciate your guys' support. uh, And we'll see you guys next week. Bye.